doing business is becoming harder and more complex. Societal and environmental issues are now at the forefront of businesses. All organisations are somewhere on a sustainability journey, and regardless of where you are in that journey, employees and stakeholders need to be engaged to try and galvanise collective energy to address massive issues. In this episode, Impact Scott Rose is joined by Ryan Hamilton, Chief of Staff for the Environmental Defence Fund, to discuss how change can be influenced within our organisations. Well, hey, thanks for for joining us today, Ryan. And, you know, this is a good opportunity, I think, for the two of us to talk about environmental leadership. What does that mean? Maybe what are some of the things that get in the way? What does good look like? And anything else that we think comes to mind, you know, as we think of the kind of people that are listening to this podcast, they will be the kind of people that will have some form of leadership responsibility within the organization that they work within. So, you know, they're the people that we're talking to and it would be great if we've got some messages or some points of view or perspectives that may be helpful for them. Thanks, Scott. Well, it's fantastic to be here. You and I have had many interesting conversations on the side of training programs and things that we've done together. So it's about time we pressed record on one of them so that people can listen into those interesting conversations. Looking forward to this. Yeah. I agree. I agree. No, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ryan. It's, um, I think it's been... Uh, about four or five years now that Impact has been partnering with EDF in in various forms. And there may be listeners to this who aren't yet aware of the good work that EDF does. So maybe, Ryan, um, we should do some introductions to start with. And and why don't I kick off? So Scott Rose here, uh, VP for Consulting for the Americas region. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, you know, designer, facilitator amongst many other things. But Ryan, uh, over to you. Thanks, Scott. Well, maybe I'll start with introducing EDF before I talk a little bit about myself, but I think it's important to lay that context. The Environmental Defense Fund, as we're known, or EDF for short, uh, we were actually founded by a group of scientists on Long Island back in the 60s uh, to protect the domestic bird population from a chemical called DDT which sounds incredibly uh, linear or kind of fairly isolating in terms of the environmental context there. We're we're a much bigger organisation in our focus these days, but it is useful to remember where we've come from, scientists trying to solve a scientific problem, and that's still at the core of our DNA. These days, though, EDF is a global organisation and we're really focused on deploying those game-changing solutions to the most pressing climate challenges Uh, That really means working in the geographies with the most climate pollution and thinking about how to harness tools like innovation and economic forces together with that science that I talked about to confront those climate problems. We work in the US, we work in Europe, we work in India, we work in China, and we work in a whole number of other geographies. And really, we're bringing experts together with policy advocates to try and affect change. That's what we do for our day to day. I think one of the things that's really struck me, Ryan, about how EDF is organized is really with a cross-sectoral approach in terms of the number of different experts that you can bring together in order to try and advocate and create change. And one of the things that, uh, that I've always noticed with EDF's work has been the partnership approach or, you know, even perhaps working with businesses and other organizations that may at first glance be those that you wouldn't normally consider partnering with. Yeah, indeed. There are some unorthodox partnerships in in the work that we do. And in part, Scott, that's the kind of work that I personally do. I've been at EDF for more than four years now, 
as the organization's chief of staff. And chief of staff is one of those roles that can mean many different things in many different organizations. But for us, it really means working in close collaboration with our president and CEO, Fred Krupp, our executive director, Amanda Leyland, and other senior leaders to guide the organization to retain that focus on our mission, to work on those real solutions. And sometimes those solutions, they engage, they, they mean working with unorthodox partners, companies like McDonald's or Walmart or, or Amazon to think through how they can have an impact on the types of problems we're confronting. This is not an organization that is focused necessarily on the creating of movements. It's not, a, it's not really about harnessing people power in the traditional sense. It's around how do we actually use the levers of influence to have an impact. And sometimes that involves working with unorthodox partners. Yeah, I like that 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 concept or that phrase, the the levers of impact. Um, and it reminds me very much, Ryan, about some work that we did together um, with a group of stakeholders across EDF, considering the levers to influence change with regards to your strategic planning process. That's, you know, one of the uh, initiatives that we help to support EDF with, which is the the creation of a strategic planning framework um, really to help inform a more consistent approach to strategic planning across the organization for change. Um, and that, that was a fantastic piece of work to be involved with. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, Scott, that you'd been working with EDF for four or five years, or Impact had been working with us for four or five years. They have been a transformative four or five years for this organization. We have been going through a period of evolution, thinking through how do we have an impact in a political and economic climate which is constantly shifting. And for us, that means being self-critical and self-examining of how we how our strategy is set up, the type of framework we have to have an influence, uh, how we unlock the talent at our disposal, all of those big strategic questions that you need to answer to make sure you are well positioned to have the type of impact that EDF wants to have in the world. And the work we've done with Impact has has certainly set us up for success in that realm. Thanks, Ryan. It's um, it's been a, a a great experience for us so far, and one that we very much look forward to to continuing in the, in the future. I know we've got a few things in the pipeline. Um, so so let's let's get down to talking about the the the, the challenge at hand. You know, we've we've just had COP twenty six. We think of where we're at in terms of global biodiversity loss. Um, climate change, not hitting the targets that we want to, um, you know, quite a lot of rhetoric around at the moment, particularly coming out of big events like COP26, and maybe not the kind of action that the rest of the globe want to see. What do you think, uh, uh, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the things that are getting in the way of the kind of leadership action that we all sorely need right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And there is an interesting graph in the Financial Times earlier this week, actually, that I think illuminates this point. The digital newsletter Moral Money talked about, well, it asked a series of organisations what was motivating them to adopt environmental goals beyond regulation and being forced to by, by governments and other institutions. The number one reason, Scott, the number one reason as to why they were adopting environmental goals with more than 50% of respondents agreeing was to improve their brand or their image and reputation among customers. 
So that obviously is a double-edged sword. Firstly, you've got the concept of greenwashing, which we're all familiar with, where organisations effectively adopt these goals for a PR exercise or a marketing exercise. That's still a threat, and we have to be constantly examining the robustness of what organisations are doing in this space. But I choose to think about that as a little bit of an opportunity as well. In some ways, customers driving organisations to think this through, customers really demanding more from the places they shop and the services they uh, they attain, that gives us the chance to go in and work with these organisations and make sure that they are setting robust goals and have robust plans to achieve those goals. So that is still what we would call a barrier to real environmental leadership, but it's also an area of real responsibility or, or possibility. Hmm. As I think of that increasing shifts of customer demands, um, pressures from different stakeholder groups, pressures from lobbyists for organizations to respond and show some form of leadership in, in, in service of the climate crisis. I think some of the things that can get in people's way is they, they don't know where to start. I mean, that's a huge thing. You know, how can me as somebody sitting in an organization somewhere do anything that's really going to make a difference to be able to, you know, serve these pressing challenges that we face. Yeah, that's and that's a fair point. The, the size or the gargantuan size of the problem that we confront is sometimes disarming for anybody, whether that's someone sitting at a corporate boardroom table or whether that's someone sitting at a kitchen table trying to think about their own personal impact. That is one of the disincentives to action is the size of the task. But there's a couple of things that I'd say there. Firstly, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. The first brick is the first brick and the second brick is the second brick. Start building a house. And that's really about getting, you know, off that in, that stage of indecision and starting to do something, whatever that is. For corporate leaders, the tools they have at their disposal are more significant than they might think. You know, in a lot of ways, measuring what you can uh, in terms of your business model has now evolved to not just being about inputs and outputs and figuring out where your profit margin is. It's about figuring out how do you sustain your business in the long term. And these types of problems that we're confronting, sustainability is not just a framework for how do I confront the environmental challenges. It's really as much as anything about how do I sustain my business in the long run? And how do I make sure that the business I'm running is around in 10, 20, 30, 40 years time? And so evolving your business model, evolving the metrics that you assess to really internalize those types of questions, that's the responsibility of the next generation of business leaders. And I think they get that, Scott. I, I really do. I think we're seeing a new generation of leaders who have really started to grapple with what it means to be an organizational leader in the 21st century and not just about dollars and cents, but around sustaining your business into a new era. Yeah, I like that reframe of sustainability, which can be a word that people find difficult to access as well in terms of sustaining the business or the organization that you work for to be around in the long term. And and also there's something about, you know, organizational purpose that I think you were alluding to there, Ryan. You know, in, as we think of those organizations that have done the most in service of environmental leadership, there is a form of 
um, purpose for the planet that is interwoven in their organizational purpose. You know, classic examples like Patagonia, for example, they've been founded and formed with that as a core part of their vision and their values moving forwards. We even see that with some financial investment organizations such as BlackRock, you know, who produce um, some, you know, pretty pretty significant reports um, every, every year. Um, how, how do you think organizations can go about interweaving these kinds of things into their their own purpose? It's a good question. I think to some extent that is happening organically, Scott, through the transition of leadership. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm I'm 37 years old, so I'm I'm definitely not defined as a millennial. I think I'm probably in the on one of those border regions of Gen X, Gen Y, somewhere in there. I've I've never really neatly fit into a category for the generational questions. But the colleagues that I have both within EDF and within other organizations we work with that are in that millennial frame, purpose is their, that's their definition for coming to work. So the workforces that your listeners here are, are managing, they get this. It's in their DNA. And in a labor market whereby we are fighting for talent, an incredibly competitive labor market, Defining your purpose is as important as defining your broader business mission, as defining what your mission statement for the organization might be. Actually internalizing your purpose into the work that your staff get to do and making sure it's a real part of their day-to-day existence is not an optional extra anymore. It's something that the, the next generation of managers and employees are demanding. It's it's not academic. We have to do that to be able to retain and recruit talent. So defining your purpose, internalizing that purpose and critically involving people across the organization, because by doing that, you're going to be integrating people who have a strong driver, strong set of values around the kind of environmental stewardship and leadership that, that, that we're looking for. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. There's also an extra element there, Scott, which is helping to uh, define that purpose and helping to define those values. That has to be a collective exercise. Uh, in as we move into to more collective models of organisational leadership, uh, staff, employees, managers across the hierarchical structure, they need to be bought into the process of defining what those values are, defining what that mission and purpose is, being told by leaders at the top of a hierarchy, what it is that they care about, that doesn't fly anymore, nor should it. We are now in a more holistic model of organisational operations and and people want to have a say in what they do with a significant chunk of their time. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and what I think I'm noticing, Ryan, about our conversation is that we're not talking really much, if at all, about the the brand, the bottom line, the figures, the investments, the logistics of an organization. What, what we're really talking about here are people. And we certainly have a view at Impact that's shared by many others that organizations really are groups of people that are working together. And when you think of that in terms of a way of referring to work, work is about being people-centric. Work is about people who are either trying to do things differently um, or trying to do different work. That's what change is all about. And in terms of organizations, if you reframe your thinking 
that the organization isn't about the brand or the bottom line or the infrastructure, but the brand is the the organization is about the people. By having a human centric approach to that organizational work, it it starts to demystify some of the things that we're talking about. It's all about how can you help people to work better together. Um, how can you help create some of the structures that we're talking about here to be able to liberate that potential across the organization? And Ryan, I'm curious to know, you know, with that kind of approach in mind, a human-centered organization approach, where do you see any of that with the external work that you're doing with EDF? Well, I think, Scott, that at the end of the day, the problems we are trying to confront as an environmental NGO are about people. We are not trying to solve climate change for the utility of having a check mark against something on our global to-do list. The reason we are trying to protect the environment, the reason anyone that works in this space, I think, is trying to make progress against our climate goals is to protect the earth that we live on for, you know, sorry, it's to protect the vitality of the earth that we live on because that's what's essential to our continued existence. You know, the the idea of environmentalism being something that was about protecting polar bears on melting ice caps was it's a different concept of uh, environmentalism. What we're talking about now is making sure that the earth that we live on can sustain us for multiple generations to come, that we can continue to live the lives that we enjoy now in the same way we enjoy them or in a similar way that we enjoy them. And that is not about doing it for the sake of doing it. It's about protecting people. And that has to be at the core of everything we do as environmental organizations. But I think the business models of the organizations that you work with at Impact, they're changing as well. They're recognizing that people have to be central to everything they do, that consumers are no longer just uh, dollars and cents on a balance sheet. They are people making people-based decisions. And if they can internalize that into the way that they work and the way that they manage, then it's a lot easier for them to think about how their business models need to evolve to recognize that social contract and to recognize that they have more to do as responsible corporate citizens. We are noticing quite a significant increase in terms of the integration of sustainable language and sustainable business practices within so many of our clients' work at the moment, it used to be pretty rare that you'd see it interwoven in mission and vision and values and leadership behaviors, but it's now it's now in there. It's interwoven in so many of our different clients' approaches. It's, it's, it's really noticeable. Uh, and I think there's something else that you mentioned, Ryan, that really stands out to me, which is as we think of where leadership is going to come from for this kind of... Um, environmental benefit, the leadership action doesn't have to just be at the top level. It doesn't just have to be the CEO or the executive suite. It's the kind of leadership action that can take place from anywhere within an organization. Really, it's just about people who are able to notice that there is a need for leadership and have the courage to challenge that status quo and, and, and take action itself. And often it's the people who are closest to the front line of the work that's happening. They're the ones that can really make a difference because they, they see what's happening on the ground. 
Yeah, I think that's right, Scott. The people on the ground see a reality that those at the top of organisational hierarchies might not. And that means that they're closer to the solutions as well as being closer to the problems. And, you know, a prime example of this, I think, is the evolution that business and NGOs have gone through over the last three or four years around environmental justice and equity in this country. I think it's the staff and the managers who are driving organisations to recognise that environmental equities exist from both historic and current systems and we have to address to we have to address those root causes of environmental injustice, including racism. So the, the reason I'm talking about this now is because I think it's not just about creating a framework to address these broad concepts of things like sustainability and like environmentalism and climate. It's actually about thinking about the people-centred systems that exist underneath these, the things that have driven us to these historical inequities, whether they be social, environmental, racial, we have to think about the systems that are fundamentally flawed and how we shift that. And my experience with staff at EDF and the organisations we work with is that that is, that is something that is in the DNA of people we work, we're talking about. They, they understand that. They've internalised that. That's part of the reason they come to work is to solve those problems. So I think there's an opportunity there, Ryan, for anybody, wherever they sit in an organisation, to be increasingly aware of the system that they are a part of both the historical system as we're talking about um, inequity, racial justice, environmental justice, as well as, um, you know, what that system means in, in other aspects as well. And when they know where they sit in that system, be they a receptionist at a front desk or the CEO of an organization or anyone in between, they're better able to pull those levers, pulling back to, you know, an earlier part of the conversation we were just having, so that they know where they can influence people and they can influence change. But I think more importantly than that, there's something about a different perspective or a shift in perspective that's needed. Almost being able to zoom out, being able to um, step away from the day job, being able to engage with multiple perspectives. And if you're the CEO, understanding what's going on, uh, you know, more on the on the shop floor, or if you're someone who's more junior in the organization, having a, a different point of view from somebody that's somewhere else in the organization. I, I, I just wonder if we, it, it, you know, particularly in today's world, which is in, seems to be increasingly polarized, if if you allow yourself to have the blinkers on, you're only ever going to keep doing what you've always done. Uh, I don't know what you think about that as a, as a concept. Yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways, the last two and a half years of a COVID-19 impacted workforce and all of us sitting in our home offices or studio apartments or kitchen tables and doing the things we used to do in uh, glass towers across the world, that's forced us to rethink what it is, it, what it means to bring your whole self to work. And physically, we haven't been able to bring any part of ourselves to work in inverted commas. We haven't been able to walk through the glass doors and, and sit down and have our nine to five. So we've had to recognise uh, why it is we do what we do. And that involves taking responsibility for the fact that if you turn up to work, you have a responsibility to actually bring your whole mind to work and your whole value system to work and to try and influence the places you can influence. So sure, you do your job, you do the job that you're hired to do, but at the same time, you are not just bringing uh, an automated robot worth of 
labor force to work. You're bringing a brain, you're bringing a set of values and you're bringing an existence. And things like sustainability and racial justice have been at the core of our identities as employees over the last two and a half years. And I believe they will continue to be. So if we think about the opportunity for anybody within an organization, we've spoken about a number of things already, but what might be one or two things that really stand out to you in terms of some steps that anybody could take? Yeah, that's a really good question, Scott. I think that's the that's where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people is they, they look at the gargantuan size of the problems they're trying to confront and they think, what can I possibly do to even work towards solving this? And the truth is that the, the most powerful institutions in our society are still the places where we can have the most impact. What I mean by that is our elected representatives carry the most power to change society. So the first thing that any individual can do is care about who represents them in those elected bodies, care about who your congressperson, who your member of parliament, whatever system you live within, care about who's representing you and care about what it is that they're saying about these issues, whether that's sustainability, whether that's environmentalism, climate change, racial justice, whatever it is that you care about, align your value set with the people that you're voting for. And your responsibility doesn't stop at the ballot box. If they're not living up to the expectations you have of them, call them, write them, demand more from them. Elected representatives go into their their vocations knowing that they are accountable to people. And it's important that we had, we take that responsibility seriously of holding them to account. So that's the first thing that any individual can do. But business leaders, I think it is about evolving how they lead, you know, being deliberate and focused on some of these problems that once upon a time seemed additive to how to run a profitable business. Now they're about how to sustain your business into a, a new era. Businesses that don't internalize issues around climate and sustainability, frankly, won't be around for the long term. And we've seen some of the pressure placed on corporate executives in the last 18 to 24 months really start to be recognised by boardrooms. You know, we saw the incredible campaign by the small activist head fund, Engine Number no. 1, that managed to elect three uh, directors to the ExxonMobil board those are directors were not elected really because of social change or even uh, political change. They were elected because the shareholders of ExxonMobil saw the lack of climate and sustainability in the business model as a real business risk. They looked at it and said, without understanding these issues and internalizing them in our business model, we have a risk to our business. And that's what changed that. So corporate leaders... I think need to understand that and need to evolve their their structures and operations to reflect it. There's there's something in there that you're describing, Ryan, which is about those corporate leaders' ability to listen and notice and perhaps expand their frame of reference to be able to understand the different perspectives, the viewpoints of their shareholders, of their people, of their staff, in order to be able to service that greater population because as we've already discussed there is a a, a high degree of uh, of drive for people to be taking action people want to see action i think the, the lesson here is that in 2021 having an impact having a positive impact on the environment is not a vanity project it's an essential business practice yeah absolutely 
At Impact, there's five ways that we recommend that we can reframe leadership. Sometimes we get stuck in terms of what we think leadership is for. And I'd suggest in the conversation that we're having here, Ryan, that these are pretty applicable. So the first is systems thinking. It's your ability to see yourself as a part of the system. Without that ability to see yourself as a part of the system, you're just less able to act and to be able to collaborate with others and affect change. Number two is your ability to zoom out and to be able to see the patterns that you're stuck within and interrupt those. Again, when we get stuck in day-to-day meetings, back-to-back meetings, um, days that are full, um, we're less able to step back and really see the opportunity for change that presents itself to us. Number three is about challenging your own beliefs. It's about disrupting the status quo and being willing and actively engaging with people with beliefs other than your own. That's often how we're able to understand that there is a different approach that is possible. At number four is purpose. So connecting to your broader purpose. We've already had some conversations about that today, Ryan, and being able to know your own role within it. So connecting purpose to action. And number five is about liberating brilliance. The role for anyone within an organization isn't to do it all on yourself. It's not about the I, it's about we. It's how can we as a collective create the kind of change that we want? And how can you as a leader within your organization liberate the brilliance from your people? One of your five leadership frames, they're liberating brilliance. There's a great program that EDF has run for many years called Climate Core, where fellows from college-age fellows are placed in companies to help them focus on their sustainability pathways, to help them think about how, how to have an impact. In 2021, we expanded that program to India, where fellows helped companies like Amazon and McDonald's and Mahindra and Mahindra think through ways to slash their carbon emissions. That's a great example, I think, of what you're talking about there, which is uh, allowing others to meet their potential and giving them the platform to meet their potential. So I think organizations can look at models like that and really think there are ways to have an impact almost immediately. And in addition to that, there's, there's support out there. There's organizations like EDF and others who can help people where they may need a starting hand, where they may need some expertise in order to be able to make a difference. So there's a big part of that about collaboration. And, um, you know, Ryan, if there's any of our listeners here who are thinking about what might some of those first resources be where they could go to to get some additional support and help and guidance, where would you direct people? Well, I'd direct them to us, to be frank. I think EDF is here to help. (laughs) You know, organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund, we have really taken seriously that responsibility to drive consumer and investor behavior to confront climate change. And I think what you'd find in the environmental community is not a snarkiness about what has been done in the past, but a real willingness to help companies evolve and understand how to take climate action in a methodical and impactful way. And that's true of EDF, but it's not just EDF. The the landscape environmental activists that you see in 2021 is willing to help and eager to help companies evolve and get this right. Well, 
On that note, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us for this session. Uh, as always, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Plenty of leadership opportunities for everybody who's listening to this podcast. And I must admit, there's a number of things that I've taken from this as well, Ryan. So thank you once again for your insight, uh, for your ideas. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you again. Thank you, Scott. As always, it's been a fascinating conversation with you and I look forward to many more. Massive thank you to both Scott and Ryan for taking the time to record their conversation for us. If you would like to find out more about the Environmental Defence Fund, or of course, Impact, please see the links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and until the next time, take care. Bye.